I sat and prayed to invite Jesus into my life. At that young age, I don't really know if I understood truly how much God loved me. Um, I don't think I really understood everything about sin and its consequences, and I'm not entirely sure that I knew that my sin was part of the, most of the reason that Jesus died on the cross, and he paid that penalty that I should have paid. But as a youthful kindergartner, I did know that Jesus was in my heart and he was in my life. Um, my childhood would probably be considered about as close to perfect as one could get. I grew up in a Christian home with Christian, grand, Christian parents, Christian grandparents. I went to a Christian school, and I was all around an obedient kid. I did really well in school. I was enrolled in honors classes. I was involved in sports, and I even served the community with a, in, involved in a charity organization. Um, so I was really driven to be that perfect Christian. Um, so on the outside, I'm sure everyone thought, wow, she has it all together. But on the inside, it was a different story. I was far from put together. My life felt surprisingly empty, and I struggled with an overwhelming lack of contentment. I had a desperate need to feel loved by others and accepted, so I tried many ways, different ways, to find significance um, by pleasing others, I became a people pleaser, and I never wanted to do anything that would let anyone down. Um, I was also often overcome by worry. I worried about things that I thought I could control, and then also things that I knew I had no control over whatsoever. Um, at that same time, I really lacked self-confidence. Um, I often shied away from anything that would take me out of my comfort zone. So I. I found myself succumbing to feelings of jealousy and envy, um, especially as I compared myself to other people. Um, I even tried to build myself up by mentally tearing other people down. I was truly concerned mostly with making myself look the very best I possibly could in the sight of others. So yet, through all this, I knew that there was just, there should be more to my life. I knew that in my heart that something was missing. And um, yet I wouldn't quite understand what that was until I left my Southern California home and I traveled up to go away to college at UC Berkeley, of all places. <laughs> One afternoon at the beginning of my freshman year, I was spending some time with a good friend of mine named Robin, and she asked me if she could actually practice giving her testimony to me since she was going to give it later that night, similar to right now, <laughs> at a, um, during a Christian club at campus. So I agreed, since it was the polite thing to do, and I sat and listened to her story. And as I listened to her story, I was truly shocked with how similar her life was to mine. Uh, yes, I attended church, I read the Bible occasionally, and I continually tried to be a good person. But there was obviously something different about her Christian life. I hadn't realized until that point that being a Christian doesn't come from trying to be religious. Yes, it meant that I had invited Jesus into my life, and I began that relationship with him. But there was one other thing that was just as important. It also meant continually yielding control of my life over to Jesus Christ. And that was what was missing in my life. I had not given Jesus Christ total control of my life. So when Robin finished her testimony and she had to run off to class, I sat there speechless. It was really like a light had been turned on in my mind. Everything around me became clearer. 
And when I got back to my dorm room, I opened up my Bible and I just began reading. Passages that I had read numerous times before suddenly had new meaning to me and application in my life. I prayed to God that he would take control of my life and at this time I rededicated my life to him. I now have that personal relationship with him and I feel secure knowing that I'm accepted by Christ for who I am. I also have direction and purpose in life and I feel that is to live every day to serve Christ and to learn more about him. I know that Christ has a plan for my life and all I have to do is give him control and place my trust in him. Since that fateful day, I have seen God slowly and gently work on those areas where I struggle most. He has also challenged my faith through many different circumstances. God has made me more aware of the sin in my life and the hurt that it can cause others. I'm so very grateful for his unconditional love, his forgiveness, and also for his patience with me in our relationship. As you know, a relationship requires continual communication and work. So giving up the control of my life to Jesus Christ remains a continual and constant battle for me. Um, I will go for periods of time living life on my own terms, and then God gently, or sometimes not so gently, um, reminds me that my life is simply meant to be lived with him in control. Um, My husband, Sean, and I got married in 1997, and two years after we were married, we traveled to China as missionaries. Um, God had truly now sent me to a place where I was very far out of my comfort zone. And it proved to be a very difficult time for me personally. I found myself trying to live in a culture where I simply obviously did not quite fit in. With my light hair and skin color, people often stared and pointed fingers. And I was in a country where I did not know anything of the language at first. Um, I was completely dependent on other people for my basic needs which was hard for me. (laughs) Being an introvert, I was also terrified of the very idea of having to go go up to random people, try to build relationships with them, and share the gospel with them. Adjusting to living as a missionary was definitely one of the most difficult challenges I've ever faced. Um, My language struggles, cultural interactions, and feelings of failure eventually led me to falling into a pit of self-pity and despair. About halfway through our time in China, I just really wanted to give up and go home. Um, However, God really, he literally woke me up through, through a dream I had one afternoon while I was napping, and he mercifully showed me how I was attempting to do everything on my own again, um, and I was not trusting in his ways. So when I finally allowed him to lead me, um, I was actually able to enjoy the rest of the time I built relationships with girls um, on the college campus, and he showed me how he was working in some of the women's lives there. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. A few years after returning from China, God led Sean and I to a new mission field, one within our own home, ministering to our own children. Um... As you can imagine, this mission field is full of its own ups and downs. Um, But we're greatly blessed with our kids, and I I truly feel blessed to be a mom. Um, When when I found out we were pregnant, actually, with our third child, I was suddenly overcome 
with my struggle of worrying, um, I had an overwhelming sense that something was not right. Um, I would pray and continually ask God for peace, but worry took over. Um, looking back, I actually believe that God was graciously preparing me for what was to come. About halfway through that pregnancy, my health began to deteriorate significantly. My doctor was baffled at my symptoms, and I was later referred to a few specialists. Eventually, I was diagnosed with having a partial molar pregnancy, which caused preeclampsia, hypertension, and a tumor on the placenta. The baby was diagnosed with fluid on the brain, undeveloped and missing organs, and triploidy, which is a unique um, diagnosis of having three complete sets of chromosomes instead of the normal two. Sitting there in the doctor's office receiving all this news at once, I was completely numb. Everything around me seemed so surreal. Just days before, everything seemed normal, and now my own health was in serious condition and my baby was not going to live. I called Sean and tried to explain all that was happening, and he rushed to join me at the hospital. Together we prayed and cried and asked God to help us. At that time, we also found out that our baby was a baby girl. We named her Hope and dedicated Jeremiah 29:11 to remember her by. And Jeremiah 29:11 states, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. We clung to that verse as we endured numerous doctor's appointments, residual health concerns, and emotional circumstances. Throughout the entire ordeal, however, God was so gracious, and he provided me over and over with personal confirmation to all the decisions we had to make through the process. He also repeatedly, and most importantly, I think, pressed upon my heart that he is the only true one in control of life itself. And after another year, God actually blessed us tremendously and miraculously by giving us a healthy baby boy. So I'm truly thankful for the family that God has blessed me with. Over these years, I've found that God continually asks me to surrender and sacrifice my own desires so that he can work in me and through me. Life just works better when I relinquish the control to Jesus instead of taking out all myself. Now maybe it's because I actually competed in hurdle races in track in high school, but verses of metaphors about races have always struck a chord in my heart. And in a hurdle race, you know that there's going to be obstacles in your way, and you just have to find your way over them. Just like in life, God's not surprised with these hurdles that come about in our lives. They were actually placed there before the race began. And I, too, shouldn't be surprised by difficulties or challenges along the way. I am just to simply press on and finish the race. Even if I stumble or fall, Jesus will help me there get back up and finish the race. So I just want to close with my life verse, um, Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. Thank you. You know, uh, it's tempting to think that everybody else has it better or easier or that life is just simple for them, but it's not. Life is life 
and life always has its troubles, but we're different in a, in a, a unique way in the fact that we've been given God's Holy Spirit. Paul puts it this way, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, and although pressed in, pushed on, strained in every way, we don't break. It's a weird sort of thing. It's because we've got the power of God literally in us. We have God in a, indwelling in us. So let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. For our scripture reading, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word that we could come before you, Lord, learn of you, Lord, that God, as we encounter you, uh, we won't be changed. We won't leave here the same way, but we'll be changed. And we just ask now, Lord, for you to apply your word to our lives, help us to have understanding and God, help us to carry it out into this world. We thank you now. And Lord, I ask that my words would be edifying to you. In Jesus' name, amen. During Desert Storm, General Charles uh, Krulak uh, was sharing about an incident that he had to deal with uh, during the Desert Storm, the Gulf War, uh, Desert Storm. And he was sharing this at a leadership prayer breakfast. This is what he said. He was during Desert Storm, the United States Marine Corps was ordered to push up the Saudi Arabian coast through the minefields of southern Kuwait and capture Kuwait City. Now, to move 80,000 Marines up the coast, they had to build a logistics base to support that many Marines. So they just chose uh, a base to build a base at Cabret, which was 30 kilometers south of Kuwait and 30 kilometers in from the Persian Gulf. And the reason why they picked it was there was an old airfield there that could produce, had, had wells dug, that could produce 100,000 gallons of water per day because that's what the Marines needed in order to support that many troops. Can you imagine the logistics of, okay, we've got to figure out a place to put all these Marines, but where are we going to get the water? We need 100,000 gallons a day. So 14 days before the war began, General Norman Schwarzkopf, commander-in-chief of the Central Command, made a daring move called the Great Left Hook. Of all the daring moves, when you think about it, the Great Left Hook, like, it sounds like something that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar would do back in the days of the Lakers. But the Great Left Hook was the move that, that Norman Schwarzkopf chose. And the sweep of forces flanked the Iraqi army. It was, it was not only a great move, but it forced the Marine Corps to move 140 kilometers to the northwest and locate a new logistics space at the gravel plains. The problem was there was no water. For 14 days, general said, the general said, we had engineers digging desperately to find water. We went to the Saudi government and asked if they knew of any water in this area. 
And their answer was no. We brought the exiled Kuwaiti government down to our command post and asked, do you know if there's any water in this area? They said no. We went to the Bedouin tribes and the nomads, the people who lived in that area, and said, do you know where there's water on the gravel plain? They said there's no water there. We kept digging wells hundreds of feet deep to no avail. Every morning at 7.15 a.m. during my devotional time, I asked the Lord to help us find water. On the Sunday before we were to enter Kuwait, I was in a chapel service where we were praying for water when a colonel came to the tent and said, General, I need to show you something. We drove down the road we had built through the desert from the gravel plains to the border of Kuwait. About a mile down that road, the officer said, look over there. About 20 yards off the road was a tower that reached 15 feet into the air. It, it was a white tower, and at the top of the tower was a cross. Off the ends of the cross were canvas sleeves used in old train stations to put water into train engines. At the base of that cross was an eight-foot-high pump, newly painted red. Beside that pump was a diesel engine, and beside that, four batteries still in their plastic. On the engine was an on button and an off button. I pushed the on button, and the engine kicked over immediately. I called one of my engineers and asked him to test the flow coming out of the pipes. An hour later, he said, Sir, it is putting out 100,000 gallons a day. Amazing what prayer does. Note that they found this pump on a road that they built. They were searching for water for 14 days, but this general had the wisdom to ask God. That's what today's message is all about as we look at these verses. We partially handled verses uh, the, the first couple of verses, uh, 14 and 15, last week. And one of the things we talked about was, James says, you have not because you ask not. Well, this story reminds us that we need to beseech God. We need to thrust our faith upon God to receive. It is prayer that aligns us with the will of God. Now, you may be asking, what's the secret of effective prayer? Because I, I know there was a time in my life where I felt the same way. Like, I, I want to pray, but, but what's that secret? What's the, what's the magic way to do it? How, how do I best do it? And, 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 and how should I go about praying? Well, you know, it's interesting because the Lord taught us to pray. And it was so simple. I think we tend to overlook it. We tend to go, well, there's got to be more to it. Maybe there's a special gift or I'll, I'll learn a, a special uh, discipline where I can stay in a prayer mode for a certain amount of time. That's not what the Lord showed us. The disciples came to the Lord Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And this is what he said in Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive those who have who are forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Wait, there's got to be more. There's got to be some, something more. There's got to be something more that I need to do. There's not. The key is thrusting your faith upon God, depending upon God. Our Father in heaven, who are you praying to? Well, better be the, the, the one true God, your Father in heaven. Holy are you, Lord. I'm seeking you, and I am bringing all my weakness into the presence of all your strength. 
Lord, I'm looking to you to provide for my daily needs. I'm not looking to myself. I'm not looking for, for someone else, but I'm looking wholly upon you, Lord, to provide for me. Lord, I want your will be, to be done on earth as it in, is in heaven. What does that mean? Well, remember in John here, John said, ask. Look at verse, look at verse 15, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, let me fulfill your will in my life and everywhere I go. Let me be a part of, of living for you. Lord, let your will be in my life as far as my holiness, my surrender to you. Help me not to chase after sin, Lord. Forgive me of my sin, just the way, same way I've forgiven others of their sin. See, there's that reminder. Who am I holding grudges or grievances against? Who am I not forgiving? That's what prayer is. Prayer is aligning ourselves with the will of God and then seeking His strength in our weakness. That's, that's, that's the magic thing. So, so how do we do it? Maybe we should write some books about this or, or figure it out. No, just start doing it. Just start praying. That's all you need to do. Just get ready and pray. You know, the apostles prayed often. We read about prayer meetings in the early church, but you know where I think that most of their prayer happened? The Bible doesn't say this, but I'm, I'm just kind of assuming this. They walked everywhere. And I think while they walked and traveled between towns and cities, they were praying in fact, Paul says, pray always. Pray continually. There's this ongoing conversation between you and God. This ongoing, Lord, how can I please you? Lord, meet our needs. Lord, I shouldn't have said that what I said last week. Or I shouldn't have said what I said today or yesterday. Or I shouldn't have acted that way. Forgive me. So John tells us that God hears our prayers. That we have this confidence. Well, what is that confidence that he's talking about in verse 14? Well, the confidence is that we know that he hears us. You know, Carl Lewis is one of the most successful Olympic athletes of all time. He competed in four Olympic games, ranging from 1979 to 1996. He won 10 Olympic medals, nine of which were gold. He was a successful athlete. This is what he said. If you do not have confidence, you will always find a way not to win. When our confidence wavers, so do we. The question is, do you have confidence in God? Do you have confidence in Him? Because if you have confidence in God, you'll pray. Because you know that He hears you. You know that He hears your prayers and He answers you. If you have no confidence in God, you won't pray. You'll keep looking to yourself to meet your needs or looking to others around you, looking to a husband, a wife, a boyfriend. You'll look to anybody possible, maybe even a parent. But the problem is, is we are depending upon people that depend upon people. We're not depending upon the God who depends upon no one. That's where our confidence comes from. We go to God. Who does God depend upon? No one. What are God's weaknesses? Nothing. God has no weakness. God has no poverty. God is all-powerful, all-knowing. And we know that He hears us. 
So dear Christians, let me encourage you, if there's one thing I can encourage you to do tonight, is start praying. Start praying. You know, I was amazed that um, when Pastor Rod started up our Wednesday night prayer meetings, um, you know, it didn't start out as like that big of a deal. Pastor Rod just said, you know, I just want to commit to doing every week prayer and we'll throw in a, we'll have a devotional there to get it going, but I want to commit to prayer. And I remember the first few weeks that I led the prayer meeting, um, I would I would give a devotional and then we'd start praying. And then, then I realized that, hey, people are praying more and more. And so I said, I'll, I'll do the devotional last. And I'll tell you the last five or six times I've led the prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, there's not even time for a devotional. I, I end up doing a five-minute kind of quick thing through the book of Acts just to continue on. But people are praying, and I don't cut it short. I just let it go. And, and it, they'll take up the whole hour, and the prayers are sweet. The prayers are good. People are bringing their knees, needs to the Lord. They're, they're not just rambling on forever. They're listening to each other. And one of the things that God taught me through that whole prayer experience with our church was that I see the church so vividly as we pray together in, in the sense of, I don't know everything going on in the world. I don't know every burden. I, in fact, I can't even remember everybody's need. But as the church comes together to pray, someone will pray for the pastors in Houston. Someone will pray for, for Pastor Saeed. Someone will pray for, for little Billy who's sick. I, you know, I don't know. But, but you, what you have is the church remembering the needs of the people, bringing them forward and doing something about it, projecting it upon God and saying, Lord, move. We need you to do this. I've met a lot of Christians in my life. And I've let, I, one thing I will say as I've encountered many Christians is they carry the burdens of the world and it's a depressing, hard way to live. Meaning that, that they watch the news and they get frustrated. They get angry. Oh, did you hear what's there? what that guy's doing now in the White House? And, they, did you, and I'm sure most of you guys can identify with somebody you know that's doing this. Oh, can you believe? Can you believe? Oh, uh, people are starving over here. And they start carrying all the burdens of the world. But they never do what they're supposed to do. Give it to the Lord. Pray. They start becoming burdened and depressed. The more they hear the news, the more they hear each other's burdens, but they don't go to the Lord. John is telling us that. John Wesley said this, The neglect of prayer is a grand hindrance to holiness. We have not because we ask not. Oh, how meek and gentle, how lowly in heart, how full of love, both to God and to man, might you have been at this day if you had only asked, if you had continued instant in prayer, Ask that you may be thoroughly, may thoroughly experience and perfectly practice the whole of that religion which our Lord has so beautifully described in the Sermon on the Mount. John Wesley just says, you know what? Don't neglect prayer because it's a hindrance to you, to your Christian life. The more you pray, the more God will transform you. The more you'll mirror Christ. The more you'll look like that wonderful Sermon on the Mount. So we're to pray. Your prayers are an act of faith. It's an appeal to God's strength. You know, 
I'll tell you, my girls have a way of working me over for stuff. They have to say a word, just a simple little word, and I melt. And I'm like, be strong! But it's, Daddy. Oh, man. When my girls come up to me and say, Daddy, please. I'm like, ah, I want to give to you whatever you want. We were, uh, <laughs> Elise and I were in the Apple store, and she's showing me, showing me the iPhone 6, and she, she really wants a phone, and and then she goes over and is like, Daddy, you got to see this. The iPhone 5s are free. They're giving them to you for free. I'm like, honey, it's not free. It's $30 a month plus tax. It's not free. She's like, Daddy, please. I'm like, oh, we need to leave right now. <laughs> We're out of here. <laughs> I, I couldn't handle it. But when Lucy comes up to me, little Lucy, and she comes up needing my help or scared of the raccoons that they might get her. <laughs> I don't know. I want to go and help her. Her weakness appealing to my strength makes me want to move, makes me want to do things for her, makes me want to protect her. You know, those of you that don't have kids, you can relate to this. Every time you walk out of a store and you see somebody with a sign or a needy person along the side of the freeway, that, that urge to want to give to them, that's their weakness appealing to your strength. You want to, to help them. Well, how much more if we ourselves know how to give good gifts to our children, how we ourselves know how to protect our children, does God take care of us when we go before Him? When we seek Him in our weaknesses, so much more. That's why John tells us here that in verse 15, he says, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked him. Simply put, we know we have it because we asked him. That's it. James Oh, I'm sorry. I got ahead of myself. Ian Bounds wrote this. By the way, Ian Bounds wrote many books on prayer. He wrote three volumes on prayer. I would encourage you to, to, to read at least uh, The Power of Prayer. Just read that one. It's, it's inspirational. It'll, it'll move you. But you know something about his books? He never teaches you how to pray. He doesn't because the Lord taught us. He just talks about the need for prayer and, and, and why we should pray. And, it, and it's definitely moving. But he writes this. Prayer projects faith on God and God on the world. Only God can move mountains, but faith and prayer move God. The faith which creates powerful praying is the faith which centers itself on a powerful person. Faith in Christ's ability to do and to do greatly is the faith which prays greatly. Thus the leper lay hold upon the power of Christ. Lord, if thou wilt. <clears throat> can, you, can, uh, you can make me clean. In this instance, we are shown how faith centered in Christ's ability to do and how it has secured the healing power. Remember, Christ says, I'm willing. So this faith that we project upon the Lord is what moves the Lord. Our dependence, every time you pray, 
you are depending more and more upon God. Remember, we've defined faith before in the past, and I'll define it again. Faith is hearing God speak and responding to Him with an attitude of dependence and actions of obedience. Faith is hearing God speak and responding to Him with an attitude of dependence and actions of obedience. When we pray, we exercise faith. We're to pray for one another. Look at verses 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is a sin that does not lead to death. Now, let me just handle for a moment the sin that leads to death. This passage is a tough passage, and, and I've been wrestling with this passage, and uh, I think this is probably one of the tougher passages in the New Testament. And you know what? I'm not going to solve it tonight. Uh, many, many theologians have written about this passage. I thought, well, maybe if I get into the Greek, the Greek will... No, it, the, <laughs> the translators have done a pretty good job with it. It's a tough passage. But let me draw some boundaries around this passage, and maybe it will help. First of all, the passage is not about the sin leading to death. The passage is about praying for one another. But let me just deal with the sin leading to death, because this is what we all want to know. What's the sin leading to death? Because John says, if you see a brother committing a sin not leading to death, then pray for him. But what about the brother who's doing the sin leading to death? How do I know whether to pray for them or not? Well, like I said, that's not what the passage is about. So many people have tried to put forth ideas of what the sin leading to death is. Oh, it's got to be suicide. Suicide's the sin leading to death because you die at the moment of committing that sin, so therefore that's, that's the sin. Well, there's nothing in Scripture that would back that up. There's nowhere can you find that. That's, that's speculation on our part. Maybe it's talking about Ananias and Sapphira and and that sin, remember, they lied to the Holy Spirit and they fell down dead on the spot. Well, we don't really know if it's talking about, maybe it's talking about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus says that this is the only unforgivable sin, that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, that's denying the work and the power of God. Denying that healing miracles. Remember that Pharisees looked upon Jesus as he heals and they tried to say, this is Satan doing this. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And, and I would propose to you that this isn't a particular sin, but a state of being. And I would think that in this passage, as John has spoken all the way for, through 1 John, he's mentioned many times to beware of the Antichrist. Those spirits that lead people away and deceive people away from the truth. Those that have gone out from them, but were not of them. It's very possible that that's what John's talking about, this that, uh, that apostate attitude or being that comes over someone where the Lord just says, hey, you've known the truth. You've lived in the truth. You've seen the truth, but now you deny it and go away from the truth. Maybe it's that, that apostate. I, do, I don't really know. I do think there's some things to consider here in this passage. First of all, are we talking about physical life and death or are we talking about spiritual life and death? That's, that's a good question to ask. And you know what? I don't know that we can answer that. Because most of the time in 1 John, he uses the term of life in reference to spiritual life 
And, and that's what he's talking about. But here, if it's talking about spiritual life, you'd almost get the sense that if you or I commit a sin, we need to be prayed for again so that we can have life again. But John has spent five chapters telling us that those of us who are in Christ are overcomers. We have victory in Christ. We're not going to lose our salvation and need life again. So that, that's most likely, I don't think that's the answer. But if it's talking about physical death and physical life, how does one commit this sin? Well, I don't really know. But I do think we should be aware of those who commit apostasy, those who turn away from the truth. And I think John isn't necessarily telling us that you and I should look out for that person who's committing the sin that leads to death. Okay, I'm not praying for you, sucker. No, it's not that. Sorry, that's my 80s upbringing with Mr. T coming out. <laughs> I pity the fool. Jesus prayed for those persecutors at the cross. Stephen prayed for his persecutors. Lord, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So certainly it's not withholding prayer from people. In fact, John's not even saying don't pray. He's saying, I'm not saying that you should pray for that because if that happens, you know, you can't really help them. So he's not saying withhold prayer. I think more than anything we can see in this passage that this is a call for you and I to have grace towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a call for us to act with our confidence in prayer. It's a call for us to pray for one another, to lift each other up, not to condemn one another. That's what this passage is really talking about. Now, as far as the sin that leads to death, I don't know that I'm going to help you with that tonight. But I can tell you what the, the point of the passage is, or the point of these verses are, and that's for you to pray for your brothers and sisters, to intercede on their behalf to the Lord. So, if we see someone sinning, what do we do? Get out! Vile sinner! Quick, get a scarlet letter! Quick! We, no! Burn them at the stake! No! Don't do that. Pray for them. Pray for them. Have grace. Show mercy to them and pray for them. In fact, really among the church body, it's supposed to be a community where we can bring our sin forward. We can confess our sin to one another and be prayed for so that we can be healed. James says this in James 5.13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. But for the most part, we're all happy with that. If someone's suffering, yeah, I'll pray for you. Yeah, okay, you're, you're hurt. I'll pray for you. If someone's sick, yeah, we'll come, to the, we'll come to your house. Come up here. We'll anoint you with oil. We'll pray for you. We get that. The problem in the church sometimes is when it comes to sin, we're not so forgiving. Physical sickness, we'll pray for it. We'll jump at the chance to pray for it. Spiritual sickness, ah, get out. That's not what James tells us to do. James says this. Let him, call, or let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power 
as, as it is working. So what are we to do when we're in sin? Go to our brothers. Go to our sisters. Say, you know what? I need help. I've got a sickness in me. I am sinning. I've been doing this and I've been struggling with it and I need prayer. And we start holding each other accountable. We start praying for one another. Praying for healing. Because the prayer of the righteous person has great power as it is working. That's part of that whole idea of the hospital for sinners, right? We don't tolerate uh, apostates, those who are leading people astray. John's already talked to us about that. But we do pray for the sick. Am I my brother's keeper? Cain asked, remember that? Cain asked when, and remember John had referenced Cain and Abel earlier. Am I my brother's keeper? Should I know where he's going? Well, the fact is, is yes. Yes, you should be praying for your brothers and sisters. The church has been, is God's intention for you, the church, to minister to each other. Not just to come hear a sermon, not just come sing a song, but to minister to one another. That's God's intention. So I, I challenge you to be ready to minister to each other. Ask one another, how are you doing? How, you know, we Christians have Christianese, and um, one of the Christianese terms we use is, how's your walk? You know, someone's like, I think I'm walking good. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's working okay. Well, you know, the idea there is that are you struggling with anything spiritual? That's what the idea is of how's your walk. And you know, if someone asks that, they just may be asking because the Lord's put it on their heart for them to ask you. So you have a chance to say, yeah, I am. I need prayer. You have a chance to be transparent and open. And you know what? Anytime we're going to be transparent, there's risk involved. But I'd encourage you to do so because John tells us that we have this koinonia fellowship, this love for each other because of Christ. And this is the place where we can be healed and, and cared for. In conclusion, I just want to encourage you. Remember this confidence of prayer comes by those who come in the name of Christ. That's what this confidence prayer comes from. And if you aren't coming in the name of Christ, and I don't mean by saying Jesus' name, I mean by coming through Him, that you recognize that He's your Savior, that He paid that debt for you on the cross, that He went and took your sins upon Himself and gave you His righteousness. That's coming in the name of Christ. If you, if you don't come in the name of Christ, you have no confidence. You have no confidence in the day of judgment. You have no confidence in prayer. You can ask all you want for other people to pray for you, but I'm not sure how good it will do in the end because you have a need, a need for salvation. In counseling, when I do biblical counseling with people and they come with needs, and one of the first things I ask them is who Jesus is to them. Where are they at with the Lord? Because they might come and say, hey, I've got this problem, I've got this issue, my marriage, whatever the case is. But the fact is, if Jesus is not their Lord, I can't do much for them. I can give them some basic, basic instruction. I know, it's hard. <laughs> so, I can give them some basic extru- instruction, but you know what? They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit in them to change them. It is only through the work that Jesus Christ did on that cross that we can receive His Holy Spirit. And that we can have that confidence in prayer. 
And if you've been sitting in here, you've been coming here, and you don't have Jesus in you, if you haven't accepted Him as your Savior, I want to give you that opportunity tonight. It's really simple. It's a simple prayer. (laughs) It's where we start with prayer. It's where every Christian begins. Lord, save me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much, God, that you've given us this ability, this confidence to come to you through prayer. Lord, I pray that every, every brother and sister in this room would begin to exercise this wonderful power that you've given to us to come before your throne. Now, if you're in here tonight and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, just pray this. Lord Jesus, I need what you did for me on that cross. I accept that free gift. Forgive me of my sin. I turn from it now. I'm ready to follow you. I thank you, Lord, that you paid the price for me. God, you are so good to us, Lord, loving us in every way. I'm thankful to you, Lord, that I can come to you and say, Daddy, please. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.